Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of The Cryptid Corporation, representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is Cheryl Pavelski. Cheryl's a three-time Grammy Award-winning producer who specializes in historical reissues and box sets. She's worked at Capitol Records, Concord Music Group, Rhino Records, and in 2010, she co-founded the independent catalog label Omnivore Recordings, which is still going strong today. While working at Concord, she started the project that became this year's Written in Their Soul, the Stacked Songwriters Demos box set that got rave reviews everywhere and was featured in The New Yorker. Also while at Concord, she worked with her friends Morgan Neville and Robert Gordon on the Stacks Records documentary, Respect Yourself, The Stacks Records Story. And it is my extreme pleasure to welcome to Revolutions Per Movie, Cheryl Pavelski. Hi. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I, I'm holding in my hands right here. Ooh, pretty. Yes. Oh, wait, nobody can see it. Well, no, I'll take a little still. I'll put it up. Or <laughs> or you just rub your eyes really hard and you can see it. Or just buy the damn thing. Yeah, I, yes. I, I highly recommend the latter. <laughs> Written in their soul, the Stack songwriter demo, seven CD set. Yeah. How in the hell... Did you do this? Where did it start? <laughs> yeah. And what was your process? Well, it's it started when I was at Concord. Um, when I got there, it was just about to be the Stacks 50th um, anniversary year. And because Stacks was so beloved a label, I was looking for other kinds of projects to do. Um, things that would... Um, I mean, there was the obligatory, here's the Stacks records hits, you know, the, sure. the sort of, uh, best of Stacks and, and that we did, we did a double CD that was great. You know, it, it was the, I think it was the first collection that joined the part of the catalog that belongs to, uh, Warner music group now because of the Atlantic thing. Is Concord part is they own Stacks or what's Concord? Stacks owns, um, uh, the May post May 1968 stacks okay records uh Atlantic got the pre May 1968 stacks records because of the um and we'll talk about this in relation to the, the movie contract. the contract the yes. distribution contract okay. so when they were parting ways uh the poor people at stacks were shocked to uh, go and read the fine print, which basically said, oh, Atlantic owns your entire record company now, everything that came before. So um, the the 50th anniversary project that we did joined those two parts of the catalog for, you know, first ever true best of. But I was looking for projects that would like tell different parts of the stack story that maybe hadn't been um, investigated as much. And so um <clears throat> A lot of stuff had come out already, though, because, you know, I mean, this was what, 2005, six. And, um, you know, we were well into the reissue and box set era. So a lot of things had already been done. Um, but I did find a demo for six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. And it was just the it's the one that you hear on the box set. Now it's this raw thing of just you know, Steve Cropper and Eddie Floyd singing it. And it was just like, wow, I wonder if there's more of this because this is compelling, right? right? You know, and and it got me thinking about the songwriters and um, at, at, at Fantasy, there were stacks and stacks and stacks of, of tapes you know, in the tape vault, like there used to be everywhere that were accessible to people who worked at the label. Okay, And um, so I would walk up and down the the 
stacks, S-T-A-C-K-S, <laughs> of tapes. And I would see things like Homer Banks, one inch eight track demos, you know, just a row of them. And I really wanted to, um, I wanted to hear everything that was on those reels, but um, I had a limited amount of time to pull together projects for the 50th. And um, I didn't think, well, I knew that uh, Concord wasn't going to let me go on some fishing expedition and spend, you know, thousands of dollars rolling off tape that might not amount to a project. So I went to the publisher that owned East Memphis Music, which was most of the stack songwriters um, were published by East Memphis Music. And it was owned by my friends at Rondor. Um, so I went over there and I said, hey, you know, and and they had put out <laughs> they had put out this promo sampler and it had another demo on it. I think it was Frederick Knight or um, Sam Dees or somebody like that. And I was like, you guys probably have some stuff that I want to hear. And they were like, yeah, we do. But here's the thing. Sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, we took all the original um, tapes and acetates and whatnot, and we transferred them to DATS. And, right. you know, space-saving measure. And sure. they threw away the originals. Well, then the DATS started going bad. And so they took those and they laid those to drives with all the other stuff that they published other demos you know stuff that um songs for broadway shows that never happened <laughs> you know um so there was all this stuff so i went through a, a give or take about 1390 and 120 minute dat files that had somewhere along the way some of them had lost their indexing a lot of them didn't have writer performer or song title names right so i just pulled out things that i thought were demos from the original stacks era sorry to be so windy about that but it was no this is a, fascinating it's a process you know so you get all this stuff together how yeah. are you finding the time to even listen to all this yeah i was i mean i i left concord after about i mean by by 2007 i was at rhino already okay. but the thing is you know i i started as i started going through those files i i kept finding stuff that was really interesting and um the demos themselves i mean i i'm i love hearing demos because i really believe um a lot of times they're the very essence of the song right that you know the productions in the studio um, either by, uh, you know, the writer or, or some other artist, sometimes the production gets in the way of the song, you know? Right. And so, and I, had, I had learned this uh, kind of early on in my career at Capitol, um, working on, on some very specific projects that were Beach Boys and the band related. Um, and I was hearing demos, um, that Brian Wilson and Robbie Robertson wrote, that those guys sang and and it was really um getting that close to the essence of the song was was fascinating to me and so the stack stuff even more because uh what started to emerge were sort of these sort of hero songwriter figures that nobody had talked about right right like you know homer banks and he can sing the paint off the walls uh, you know i mean that guy has amazing voice i'm like why didn't they sign him as an artist you know so anyway i just I, because it, the material i was finding was so compelling i just anytime i had some free time you know i would just uh, i was working you know at rhino and then i started at omnivore and whatever i just this was just kind of a pet project and i didn't know if it was um ever going to lead anywhere or not did your ears know what was rare in a demo? Because some of this stuff was just like kind of jammed in the middle of stuff that had been put out, correct? Yeah. Well, there there was that. And then there were, um, you know, the the song, other songwriters that they published, there were demos by other people like um, uh, Omnivore released um, the White Light demos by Gene Clark. I had found those during this process because, oh, wow. yeah. So I, I found, you know, like 
as I was going through this this material to try to pull out the original stack stuff, you know, one day I'm sitting there and I'm like, this sounds like Gene Clark, you know? And then there was this whole grouping of songs and it was so cool because I'm like, this is like the White Light record, but it's just all of his solo demos. So Incredible. I, you know, yeah, I went back to Rondor and I'm like, is this Gene Clark? I, this is absolutely <laughs> Gene Clark. And they're like, yeah, it's Gene Clark. And I said, can, wow. we, can we release this? And they said, well, clear it with the estate and with um, Universal because it was a, he was signed to AM at the time. So, you know, I, to answer your question, you know, Stax Records themselves have a sound because it was the sound of stacks it was that room right um and it was those studios and so you know i pulled out about well precisely by the end of it all i had 665 tracks that i thought were original stacks demos um and then i just went about trying to identify them so you know i i think eventually through through sort of uh the process of filtering things out it's not like something isn't an original one that at least of the material that came out you know did you have to get like a collective of musicians and writers together to help figure out <laughs> oh i remember this and we did this and yeah no you're wrong and was that was that that must have been part of the the journey yeah at, at the very end there were still some things that i couldn't identify and so um, I went to Memphis and um, my my friend Robert Gordon, who's uh, one of the producers of uh, Respect Yourself, the film yes. um, and writer of liner notes with Miss Deanie Parker, um, who's also one of my co-producers. They're both co-producers on this box set. Miss um, Parker and uh, got together um, William Bell, Bobby Manuel. Um, Henderson Thigpen and I think that was it and Dini and we listened through um we listened through the things that I couldn't identify and it was great because Bobby Manuel incredible yeah he played like he was he did all kinds of things with um Isaac Hayes and Betty Crutcher and um he was amazing he's just sort of like oh that was in B I, you know, and he could tell just by the way things sounded in there, you know, and <laughs> and it was great because, you know, they were there. I I wasn't, you know, and that's that's always yeah. the hardest thing um, in my job is I'm kind of reconstructing things backwards blind because <laughs> I yes. wasn't there, you know. <laughs> yeah. But you're also such I mean, we've talked at length about your origin story into this career and who you are. I mean, you just. I mean, you live and breathe this stuff more than anyone I know. <laughs> I just I, I I can't think of anyone better to do something like this. And also those little things where you get to go to Memphis and be with the people and find out more. Yeah, it's got to be really satisfying for a music uh, fanatic. I, if you don't mind me saying like yourself to get a complete picture and, you know, help bring this to the world. Well, this this summer was um it kind of blew my mind because, you know, I, when you do something for a living day in and day out, um, it becomes sort of normal. It's just your reality. Right. right. But I sat on a panel on um, the day of release um, at Stax Museum um, with those same people, uh, Miss Parker, uh, William Bell, uh, Henderson and um, Bobby Manuel. And, and we added Eddie Floyd. And I'm sitting there between Bobby Manuel and Floyd. Right. And, you know, I, I'm on this panel. I'm like, I don't, I've got nothing. You know, these are right. the people that were there. And um, it was it was amazing. I, one of one of the greatest um, things that ever happened to me in my entire career was um, Ro Robert was moderating and he asked um, the museum. uh person manning the audio to play the uh mac rice demo for respect yourself and um you know it's pretty primitive sounding and and you know almost all of mac's demos had this out of tune acoustic guitar so yes. he just you know he just starts rocking this thing it almost sounds like a talking head song and um the audience in unison extemporaneously 
started singing the staple singers background vocals oh my god do the mac rice demo i i i i must have looked like a complete fool my mouth just hit the ground you know yeah and it was amazing you know and how much you know do we share when something like that happens right it's just yes it's just a it's just music is it is literally the thing that we share the most as as human beings outside of being human, I think. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, even watching this film that we're going to talk about, Respect Yourself, the Stax Record yeah. story um, from uh, 2007. I, I'm, I'm watching and I've seen it many times, but I'm watching the title sequence of just still mm-hmm. photographs of Isaac Hayes and Otis Renning and Steve Cropper. And my wife walks in and she's like, you're crying already? And I'm like, yeah, I just love it. I love music so much. I just like, oh I'm God. so excited about this. And um, I just had a quick aside. I, I did a very lo-fi version of what you did once for Robert Pollard of Guided by Voices. He's put oh, out yeah. three, I think three things called Suitcase, which are 100 right. songs each of songs that haven't been on anything else. So he had right. just suitcases of cassettes lying around. And I would just stay up late at night because I was so excited. And I just was finding things at the very end or different mixes or or live things of his band Anacrusis. Um, Yeah. And, you know, it was so fun to just be like, what was this? Oh, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, just something uh, that was supposed to be on propeller. And we decided to cut it. Like, who's singing that? Oh, that's Tobin. uh, it was, you know, it was a very low tech thing of what you did, but I, I loved the process of just knowing that there were going to be people out there that were going to flip their lid about these things yeah. that, that even Robert Pollard didn't know if, I mean, he just couldn't keep up with what he had. Yeah. And I, I've, I've, I've experienced that with other artists and, you know, I, it's, it's, um, it's really great that we're, as far along in sort of recorded music history as we are, because people like us, it's, it's really, I mean, it's not for everybody, right? Right. It's for the people that have like the big bug, you know, we got bit early and, you know, it's, it's, um, but, you know, things like this stack set or, you know, the Yankee hotel Foxtrot Wilco thing that um, I was kind of doing simultaneous to it, you know, being able to present these deep dives uh, and and some alternate sort of views at this art is just um, I'm just so grateful that I get to do it for a living. But it's it's nothing beats, at least for me, it's it's so gratifying when fans, because I am one, right. r- respond to it in in the way, you know, because I think some of this stuff is mind blowing when when some of your favorite songs, uh, you know, 20 years later, you get a different view on them. It's you've lived with this stuff, you know, I mean, nothing's to to me, you know, yes, you can recite a poem or a piece of literature to yourself, or you can remember um, a painting or a piece of art or, uh, you know, a, a scene from a movie. But when you get a song, it's yours forever. You can sing it, you know, it's, it's becomes a, it just feels like it becomes a different part of you. So to, you know, to super nerd out and get some other avenue of understanding of that song, that's that's what both, um, you know, the Stax thing and the Wilco thing were for me. Um, and Stax was, Stax was like a layer down. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was way deep down. <laughs> well, let's get into the movie. Um, it yeah. was made with your peers, uh, Robert Gordon and Morgan mm. Neville directed film. And yeah. Robert Gordon has made so many amazing documentaries, Grammy Award uh, nominations for Johnny Cash's America, Muddy Waters Can't Be Satisfied, this film, Respect Yourself, the Stax Record Story. And Morgan Neville directed... The Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, 20 Feet from Stardom, Brian Wilson's A Beach Boys Tale. It's like out of the gate. It's like the best people to get on this project. And you you were involved in this project, too. Yeah. You know, I'm trying. I was trying to remember um, that far back. Um, I think they came to me with it and and pitched me on it. And um, 
you know, because it was the 50th anniversary year and all that other stuff, I'm like, yeah, we need a, we really do need a good stacks documentary. And Robert lives in Memphis. So he's right there. He's been steeped in it the whole time. And Morgan and I have been friends for, for quite a while. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen his documentary called The Cool School about mid-century um, yes. artists. Yeah, he did that as well. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a great. Oh, film. It's, it's, it, it blew my mind. I, I, I love it so much. And so, you know, he um, and he's become just a both of them amazing storytellers, you know, and whether it's audio box sets or or. Um, you know, in Robert's case, books and, yes. you know, Morgan is obviously focused on on film. But, um, you know, it just felt like it was the the right time with the right people for that project. Yeah. Before this film came out, I had, you know, like German documentary bootlegs, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, where it was like I could get what I could get from it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but no subtitles or <laughs> the, you know, a bootleg of like the Stax Review show in Europe right. when they're performing. Yeah. So having an official documentary with, you know, Dini and all these people talking about yeah. it and Al Bell um, was really a missing piece, I think, for a lot of people. I get Samuel L. Jackson to to narrate it and yep. he starts it off. It's such a great it's such a great way to start it. He says it is an epic story that which gave it life nearly killed it more than once. Good <laughs> and evil, light and dark, black and white in Memphis in the 60s. People who couldn't dine together got together to make music at a place called Stacks. And you almost expect it to be like a Star Wars scroll, you know, like, yeah. like yeah, I'm going to yeah. read this. This is like this is epic storytelling, yeah. you know, right then and there. I mean, it's just a great um, intro to what the highs and lows and the beauty and some of the drama of Stacks. Yeah. I, you know, the, the the appeal to me, you know, once sort of becoming music aware, <laughs> you know, from, from being a little kid, right. Yes. You know, it's like when you're a little kid, you're attracted to certain things. Um, musically mine was like my, the first stuff that attracted me were like acoustic guitars, like singer songwriter stuff. And, um, you know, a lot of the, um, harder rock stuff and the, um, the R and B soul stuff, it just it wasn't, in my orbit, right? Like some of it was scary for a little kid, you know? (laughs) Um, But as my ears grew up, right, I gravitated so hard to stacks and it took me a long time to understand why, but it's, you know, it's the Estelle Axton quote from, from the film. She said, we never looked at color. We looked at people and talent. I think without knowing it, that sort of became primary for me in what I eventually came to do, um, you know, the world is um, the world is pretty grim sometimes. And I wanted to wake up every day and um, work with talented people who were passionate about a collective thing. And that collective thing for me would be music and to see it. I'd let, and, you know, and and that's the thing about the the race stuff. I mean, obviously, Stax is, you know, uh, an audio history of civil rights in the U.S. in the second half of the 20th century. Right. Yes. But for me, you know, I I wanted to be in that space. I wanted to be in a space where it didn't matter who you are, where you came from, anything that we subdivide ourselves by. If you are talented enough and and awesome enough and open enough and passionate enough let's be in that space and i aspired to be all of those things yeah and so stack spoke to me in in ways that i just didn't understand or couldn't define forever until um you know until i really started working with it and so this documentary was was i i learned a lot about myself through it too you know and um maybe you know maybe that's that's you know the best art does that you know so i could not give this film a higher rating i'm like oh man and to see the people to you know that in 2007 you could still talk to mac rice you know (laughs) yes yeah and you know it it you know deanie 
Uh, we're talking about Deanie Parker when we say Deanie. Miss yeah. Parker. Yeah, yes. she was the Stacks director of publicity. Correct. That was yeah. Her title. I, she she started. Um, she started, I believe, at the Satellite Record Store. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that too because so Jim Stewart, um, who was a banker and a fiddle player, and his sister Estelle, mm-hmm. who was a former teacher got together and they basically, you know, mortgaged the house and pulled their money to rent this, this theater, the Capitol theater to record country music. Mm-hmm. And then, the, you know, people in the neighborhood started finding out about it, like Rufus and Carla Thomas mm-hmm. and people were like, Oh, I want to go and record there. And uh, Deanie Parker says, uh, has a great quote in it. When the flowers started to play their music and show their creativity, mm-hmm. Jim said, I can get into this. And Estelle said, welcome. And so Estelle <laughs> was, um, yeah learning about music through her son, who was in the Marquis. Packy. Packy Axton. Yeah, her son was in the Marquis. And so she was learning about this music through her son. But she opened the record store next to the uh, recording studio. Do you know much about the satellite record store and the history of it and her impact? She... um... She was doing sort of on the ground research, right? Because mm-hmm. um, kids would come in and she would encourage them to listen in, uh, to to the records that were there. And um, she would make notes of what they liked. I mean, there you go. You're you're right there. Ground zero. And, and yeah. And it, it's interesting how much talent poured. In, and that's another thing. You know, uh, up the street. Aretha Franklin was born up the street. You know, and so there are all these people in the neighborhood and suddenly they're they're hanging out at stacks and this music happens. I mean, how much uh, it made me wonder, like. Does every neighborhood have that amount of talent in it? I don't know, but it is a common thread in most of these uh, documentaries we're talking about mm. time and place. And, and right. you know, whether you're talking about a Welshman who's an experimental classical trained pianist meeting a surf doo-wop novelty <laughs> writer and you get John Cale and Lou Reed and then they're like, let's right. get Mo Tucker in this. And it just, and then you have the Velvet Underground. Yeah. Just, you know, um, so many things are just about people passing through and, and often not knowing the people, yeah. um, you know, like getting to know them through creation. But yeah. what was cool about this film is, the song Cause I Love You by Rufus Thomas and Carla Thomas. They cut to Booker T playing the riff mm. on the organ of the sax he played. And he was 15. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, we knew he played sax, but he was like, I also can play piano and keyboards, you know? And then all of a sudden it's like, all right, this teenager is just part of the thing. Right. It was like everyone kind of came came from the neighborhood with, with a, a skill set. Yeah. But and and then, you know, and Steve Cropper um, and 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 Donald Duck Dunn uh, yeah. b- having, you know, their band and uh, Al Jackson. It just it it was like, yeah, they didn't have to go far um, to make this happen. How nuts is it that all those people were there, though? You know, that the right people. Yeah. The, the right. Just uh, just. Yeah. I like watching Al Jackson in this film. I'm not a drummer, but like. I can never get enough of watching right. him play drums. And there's something he does um, in the 67 European tour where he, he, he hits the kick pedal, like boom, 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 boom. He stops <laughs> and then he shakes <laughs> the singer's hand. They stop, shakes it. And then he goes, <laughs> and plays yeah. the end. But it was just like, it was all staged, but it yeah. was like one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Well, that's the, the performance footage in this. Is yes. like if if you ever want to step on a stage and you haven't seen the footage in this film, just don't do it. <laughs> no, why why would you do it? Right? It's I mean, so true. Everything is just explosive and yeah. um, yeah. But just out of the gate, um, Stax kind of has some early success. You know, Wayne Jackson says the first time I was in there to play on a track, I cut a number one song. You know, with with the instrumental last night, right? And maybe that was common back then with labels. And it's also I always forget because Stax is just so large in the mythology of music that they were an independent record label. Yeah. You know, like 
they keep saying that in this. We were a formidable independent label. And I'm just like, that blows my mind. Because to me, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, there was Capital and there was Stacks. Columbia. Columbia, exactly. Sure. It's just like Stacks to me was in the conversation. Do you know how quickly their music started to kind of get around the nation? Well, I mean, now we'll pick up the Atlantic part of that story, right? I mean, obviously, the guys at Atlantic, and and this was happening with little labels everywhere. You know, you had some regional success, and then a bigger fish would come and say, "Oh, we'll we'll distribute you and sure. help you." You know, so I I think um, you know some of those early hits um, were greatly assisted by the uh, Atlantic um, distribution mechanism for sure. Um, but it's it's not far from the late 50s to when you get Otis Redding, you know. Right. So um, that stuff happened pretty quick. So I, I think um, certainly, you know, Sam and Dave, Carla Thomas, Rufus Thomas, you know, the 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 60s success was certainly bolstered by the um, the Atlantic deal. So it I think right. it happened fairly quickly. And know? Al Bell came in during that time too around the yeah. atlantic time who was a a dj uh, yeah. on the east coast and took over what was his his title at stacks at that point he was promotion right i think so the, yeah, yeah the promotion guy yeah there's a lot of really there's a lot of laughter when people talk about how great al bell was as a salesman mm-hmm. they're just like things could be so dire and he'd be on the phone and just selling yeah this beautiful uh, concept to people and we would be laughing because we're like well we have no money you know (laughs) have you ever had the good fortune to meet mr bell i haven't that dude just drips charisma (laughs) oh you can (laughs) tell he's incredible (laughs) yeah he's 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 special and i think um you know every every label in the 60s um and every manager in the 60s probably had to have that uh persuasive abilities you know those persuasive abilities where you're out there and you're selling a thing and you've got the greatest thing in the world and it just turns out that al bell had one of the greatest things in the world yeah you know i don't know i don't know what it was like back then um i always like to say that you know the music business was founded by thieves and criminals and i'm probably not far off but you know i'm not sure how hard a sell you had to do with with the that music that was so um uh present you know and sort of undeniable i mean sam and dave right yeah who also came down from atlantic um and down the stacks to record and in the film it's so great they're crying they're like what is atlantic doing to us they don't love us anymore our careers are done and they're just like why are they sending us to memphis to the scene because their their career hadn't really jump started yet right um and then they were like it was the greatest gift they could have given us that's right and i and i do feel like al bell having the promotion and and dj thing was able you know um you know later when the staple singers comes to stacks he knew them they knew him yeah um he 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 has a great quote in it oh it was otis redding and myself having an affair at the radio station. It was like, it was just us two. I just love those records. Oh my God. Yes. So just having somebody who was already just a fan mm-hmm. and, and was just ready to hit the ground running mm-hmm. was really beneficial for Jim and Estelle as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think initially, you know, who didn't have the business sense and kind of were just about keeping the doors open at that point. Yeah, for sure. In the film, there's, they tell the great story about Otis Redding's uh, trajectory through the doors of stacks. Can you can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I'm sure you've heard firsthand what that experience was like for people who were there that day. You know, this and this is we're talking about the magic of the neighborhood and sort of the uh, happenstance of things, I guess. Um it kind of blows my mind that he shows up one day, just shows up with um, it was uh, Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers, right? 
Yes. So <laughs> he's loading. He's unloading. The famous, here. the famous man we all know and love. There you go. The pine toppers, um, <laughs> contenders. Um, <laughs> but you know, he's he's unloading gear into the studio and 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 begging to let um, to, to be able to sing for someone, right? Yes. As as a, it's like me. I'm Otis, man. I can sing. Just wait. Just wait. Get me on the mic, you know. And um. They're so dismissive. They're <laughs> know, like, right? hey, get this guy off my back. He's been here all day. Just, yeah. Would you go listen to him? Like, exactly. I, I'm too busy. Yeah. <laughs> Which... and, you know, but but this, uh, what I thought was interesting is is not that they knew what they were hearing when they actually finally let him sing. But that, um, you know, the, the point was made that Otis Redding would not have had a shot at Motown. But he had a shot at Stax because Stax had this open door policy in the neighborhood, right? Like everybody else was coming in from the neighborhood and having hits, right? This yeah. guy rolls up with the pine toppers and, you know, but but they that they made this distinction between Motown and Stax. Like Motown was was very much a, a controlled situation. Stax right. had um an open door policy. And, and I even found this in some of the demos when I was working on the box set, there was stuff that we couldn't identify. And we just kind of assumed that they were um, neighborhood auditions that Jim Stewart would have on Saturdays. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, yeah. Amazing. So if you, if you look at the box set, there's, I think there's only one uh, song that we couldn't wind up identifying. Nobody could. And, you know, Robert just suggested that um it may have been drawn from one of those uh neighborhood auditions so you know the the thing is you know otis was was coming with with a group right so he he already had a leg up right and he was already in the building maybe not on a saturday but you know the fact that otis redding may have been shined on um by all of the other labels that's that's pretty telling about the magic of what was happening at stacks at the time yeah, yeah, there's a lot of discussion. Um, Al Bell and Rufus Thomas talking about over here you had Motown, you know, mm -hmm. which was, you know, they painted as like the smooth assembly belt kind of thing. Yeah. And I love Motown too, but it's so funny to hear sure. it also just be like, but what we had was like right. real and gritty. Yeah. And we, you know, like when you hear Rufus Thomas just like, yeah go on a, on a on a tear about like we had this and he just starts getting into uh, like he just starts emoting and making sounds it's just yeah. like all right yeah no you're right yeah he said motown had the sweet stacks had the funk and yeah. you know and for me i'm like yeah i mean who doesn't like motown but it, it also became one of those things for me and this is you know sort of as my ears graduated from from maybe eighth grade to high school or something right yeah, sure, um sure. you know all those so all those motown songs were great but i heard them all the time you True. know when 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 i when i got into the funk that mr thomas was talking about i was like yeah. oh yeah 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 this is for me <laughs> no i remember that film barfly came out and oh, they yeah. had it bookended with a booker t and the mg song i was not aware of and i just was like this is the greatest song I've ever heard, like in a movie theater. And they're just showing like neons yeah. of dive bars. I'm yeah. like, can the film just be this? I don't want to meet any characters. Right. And I went out like and got that record immediately. Yeah. Um, Cause it is, it just, it has a feel and a push to it that is completely different. And so unique. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what's, what's interesting about the Lorraine aside from the really impossibly sad and tragic obvious is um the uh some of the songwriters would go over there there to write um uh i i think it was bobby during our our listening session mr manuel said um he and cropper and maybe duck or something he said they'd go over there and write in the honeymoon suite at yeah, the lorraine motel yeah, yeah that yeah. cracked me up so you know i mean that's there are, that sort of neighborhood square nothing's quite far from each other there you know okay. there was a place that everybody go eat called four-way grill that's still there and you know ardent was close enough nearby so if if 
you know, um, they had a lot of the spillover um, studio work. I know um, uh, Staple Singers um, did sessions there, and I think Muscle Shoals, too. Uh, can you put that in context next to Stacks, what Ardent was in terms of what they were making? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Ardent, Ardent Studios uh, was John, uh, a gentleman named John Fry um, started Ardent, and... Um, I think they had the same boards, um, if I'm not mistaken. But but John was a um, a studio aficionado from a very young age, and um, it's where all the big star stuff came out of. Right. So um, and you know, this yeah, put that in context because you know, over over on Madison, you had big star making their first records at Arden, and over at Stacks, you know, on. Um, on Macklemore, you had, you know, the staple singers doing some of their earliest right. stack stuff. So, you know, I mean, and then, you know, up the road at American, you had Elvis doing things, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> that's, that's how, and, and then over at Royal, you had Al Green, uh, right? I mean, all of this stuff was coming yeah. out of Memphis at the same time. Can you imagine that? You know, no. I mean, you like, I think about LA and all the sessions that happened running around LA um, with uh, uh, you know, everything from, from jingle sessions to soundtrack sessions to all these great records that came out of there, uh, you know, in the late sixties, mid to late sixties there too. And, you know, it's of course been my good fortune to have been based in LA for so long and uh, especially at Capitol and, and run around to those studios and that, that, you know, like you get a whiff of those sorts of things and it's just like, oh, tell me more. Yeah. But the first time I landed in Memphis, I felt it coming up through the soles of my feet. You know, I went, something happened here, you know, and um, I, I want to know everything I can about it. So, um, but yeah, so that's, that's your context, especially, you know, late sixties, early seventies. I think it was 71. 7071 that John built on Madison. Um, but he had a he had another place on on National before that. So I d I'm not sure if he had had been doing spillover sessions from Stacks when he was on National. I that I don't know. No, when you put in those terms, it's this just it's almost too much. Um yeah. and and at 67 is also a really big turning point because the the bands, uh, I think it's like Eddie, Floyd, Sam and Dave. Yeah. Booker T and the MGs and Otis Redding, they go to Europe to play um, in 67 yeah. for the first time. And they realize they're treated like stars. Like they're like, oh, we go to hotels and restaurants and they treat us like we're stars. Yeah. And it was the first time where they were like, I think we can really make a go at this, like, you know, financially. Yeah. And we are musicians, not, I think some of them, there's some, you know, I think Wayne is talking about, we were having conversations about like, well, what what are we going to do when this all ends? And after that trip, and also after right. Monterey Pop, they're basically like, right. we are established. We're it just it just changed their mindset. They were still like it just it was like it was still in the neighborhood. Still, they hadn't realized how broadly they had influenced culture and and yeah. music yet. Um, and just Otis Redding calling his his wife and just being like, oh, I killed it tonight. They were mine. And she's like, right, I know it's really late. You know, like. Yeah, I want to go back to bed, dude. Yeah, yeah. It's true, though. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. I'm glad they got to experience that because they should have been treated like stars. Absolutely. Right? They should have been treated like stars. They should have been treated like people. <laughs> and, um, you know, yeah. And the performance footage in in that segment of of the film is just off the hook yeah. because you know they're getting that that vibe right they're like looking out at that audience and they're feeding off each other and they're in shock you know yeah, yeah. they're they're so they're, happy they're, they're playing oh. they're they're performing they're right up there with it you know the energy is great it's so great because it just it's like you know they it, the show builds all right you know it's booker t and the mgs killer all right, now we're gonna have the horn section come out, killer. And now we're gonna have Eddie Floyd come out, knock on wood, killer. Now we're gonna have Sam and Dave come out, soul man, you know, yeah. killer. And then it's just like, yeah, and here, oh, by the way, here's Otis Redding. And whenever I watch that footage, I'm so yeah. 
I'm so mad at some of the people in the audience. I'm like, you don't know how lucky you were, you know, because oh they're God. just like in a television audience watching this thing. And most of them are losing their mind. But of course, there's going to be a couple of people in the in the theater who are sitting down like that. You know, they're very, uh, you know, beat Nikki looking, you know, they're they're enjoying yeah. it, but they're not feeling it. And I'm just like, oh, well, there's always the guy in the back like this. Yes. Uh, yeah, and I, yeah, so be it. Yes, and we're talking about him. We're talking about his ghost right now. So you know, more power, That's more right. power well, to them. So I'm sure he grew up to be one of like the 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 sort of mansplainers, right? <laughs> he invented mansplaining. That's so, right. <laughs> and you know, it's not long after uh, that Otis Redding uh, dies in the plane crash, mm. and and Stax loses their biggest star because at this point Stax was Otis Redding was synonymous with Stax and Stax was synonymous with Otis Redding um Mm -hmm. they were just and that is also at the same time where Atlantic um is telling them you don't own what you think you own and Jim had not read any of the fine print right so they, they they lose everything they'd ever done up to that point incredible they lose Otis Redding Martin Luther King gets assassinated. And uh, I don't, you, you, it's, it's unbelievably tragic. Um, But I love what they did after that. They basically said, we're going to have a soul explosion. That's what they called it. The finger snap. Well, they, everything changed. And, um, you know, I I love how defiant um, and committed and independent and competitive Al Bell was in the face of all of this, right? It is incredible. Yeah. He's doing his own, he's going to like record conventions and setting up shop, yeah. like buying stacks, right. let's do this. And, and he said the finger snap symbol uh, was, it's also signaled the change, which is so iconic. And I didn't know that that came in so late. Yeah, well, before it was the, the falling records, right? Yeah, yeah. and you know the the songwriting starts changing. You know, uh, who's making love is like their biggest hit. There's that great scene in it where yeah. Betty Crutcher is talking about. Yeah, people are coming to me and like, why did you write that song? It's that sexy song. <laughs> I've got so paranoid about what's going on at my house now. Like, she, <laughs> yeah, she's like, it's it's incredible. But they they were having to rebuild the catalog, and they, I believe, yeah. recorded. 28 albums at that time to flood the market. They recorded a whole bunch of records and and basically the studios were running 24/7. All the songwriters were going bananas. Um Betty <laughs> Betty actually turns out to be one of the 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 heroes of of the written in their soul box set. Um she only ever released one um solo record on 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 the Stacks family of labels, but she was um uh part of the We Three songwriting team, and um she wrote tons of reps, tons of songs, and so um you know it, she, I wish they would have recorded her more, but um we have her demos at least, but um you know all of all of that's that um the whole everything is everything and it's and it's stacks it was just i think they had to um kind of reclaim and remake their label kind of overnight yes and the fact that they did and isaac hayes rose out of the ashes <laughs> yeah he says completely accidentally he's he's like can i be one yeah. of the 28 records you're making he's like ah, i'll right. just give me a shot and his yeah. that's the album that catches on fire yeah Hot buttered soul rolls straight out of it. And all of a sudden he goes from a songwriter straight up to, you know, their mm-hmm. biggest artist. And then along come the staple singers, right? Yeah. So so you know, you had that whole group of artists in the 60s that just get uh moved over to the Atlantic system. Um, you know, and obviously some some are on on both sides of the fence. I mean, Carla had records on on both sides, I think, but um but, you know, in the second half of this, though, wow, here comes Isaac Hayes and the Staple Singers. And it's just as big as it always was. But this is also the period where they're having to grow in an interesting way. They're starting to get people coming in and demanding to be paid off, like, you know, 
give us $50,000 or we're going to, we will kill you. And they yeah. have to hire, you know, um, you know, like protection for the, yeah. the label build fences to protect, you know, Al Bell and the musicians and to stop that. It's a damn shame. Yeah, no, it's just a, it's just a shame. And, you know, uh, not to be Pollyanna and naive or anything, you know, I, you know, people are people. There are always going to be terrible things <laughs> happening, right? Sure. But, but, but to have such a, sh a, a, a fine point put on it, you know, that like before all of these, this, this sort of cascading bad stuff happened, it was, it seemed like it was a pretty amazing, artistic space and afterwards you know i mean i don't know i to to have to have security to protect a creative space that just becomes the world that we experience now and to me that's just uh you know stacks is the best of things and it's just the worst of things it makes me incredibly sad yeah and with that protection they were you know, able to actually make some incredible stuff from it. Watt Stacks arose out of, you know, the same era. Um, yeah. And was a massive success. $1 tickets, which is incredible to go see, yeah. you know, um, the Barkays, that, that song, Son of Shaft. Still, <laughs> I'm just like, if you don't know that it's called the Son of Shaft, you're like, oh, Isaac Hayes, first we're going to get the Barkays playing. Oh, they're playing Shaft, but no. Son of Shaft. That's right. Okay, you you get a pass. It, um, but Staple Singers are incredible in that film. Um, Rufus Thomas getting everyone to come out on the field and dance. Well, just Rufus Thomas's shorts. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, doing the funky chicken. <laughs> Do the funky yeah. chicken. Yeah, and Isaac Hayes getting his you know clothes peeled off him yeah. on stage. It's really. And, and I'm so glad that they decided to film that as well. But they're also starting to move into yeah. film. Uh, yeah. was Shaft yeah. winning Academy Awards, and um, but yeah. they're also starting to spend more than they're making at this point. Well, it's it's a little bit of a testament to, um, you know, I I think it's like business rule one hundred and one, like do what you know how to do only. Like I think when you when you start seeing, and I've I've actually been at record companies where I've seen this happen because you know, we're human beings and we never learn from history, um, you know, that they're, they're like, oh, well, we're so awesome at making records. We're going to get into movies or the book world or and they're different. They're different for a reason. And you will probably fail, <laughs> you know? Yeah. They, they like, let's get a basketball team. Exactly. It's just like, no, maybe not. You know, maybe make some more great records. <laughs> You know? <laughs> right. Right. But it was, you know, it was a chance to, you know, to create more yeah. in the world and to be a force in the world and all these um, areas where money could be made. I understand. The problem was that yeah. it was just it just took the eye off yeah. the prize, which is the music. Yeah. Well, I understand the temptation. But again, <laughs> business 101 man <laughs> well i mean it didn't work right. i mean I, I can defend it all day long yeah. but i i think i i i can understand the allure sure. and the thought process of being like well yeah let's you know we gotta move into this we you know let's get you know for shaft let's get a, a black director a black leaning yeah. man black composer um and you yeah. know black producer and we'll make history and they did and they did and and that is that is all laudable and and um excellent and short lived, you know. Yes. Unfortunately. Is this the period where Columbia, CBS Columbia is coming in to work with them as distributors for the latter part of their recording history? That's correct, yeah. Um and uh you know, my understanding and I don't you know, it's 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 deeper than I think the film has time to go into, but um, you know my my understanding is that um, as as they were sort of hemorrhaging, um, one of the problems was that the recorded music side was um, tied to the publishing side. Okay, and and 
unfortunately, as the recorded music side was um, was was really um, tanking, um, the the publishing side couldn't help it because it was all coming out of the same entity. Oh wow! Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you know, if you're not able to release records properly and remember there was like a a a hitch in the distribution yeah so if you're not able to sell the records then your publishing if your publishing is under the same roof it's not making money off of records being sold right so so the publishing money wasn't flowing either so the it seemed like the seems like the economic problems were compounding it was getting messy too estelle had already left and been bought out Right. So it was it was Jim and Al Bell and um, I think uh, Bill Matthews came mm-hmm. in as a president late in into it. And he was yeah. kind of turning over stones and finding out all these problems. The FBI are starting to come in. The IRS are starting to come in. Yeah. Um, the bank is seen stacks and CBS. There's a U.S. grand jury um, with CBS and payola um, and things like that. It's just really getting so it's getting big. It's yeah, oh oh yeah there was some big trouble. <laughs> there was there was all kinds of big trouble and that's the thing it was really compounding um uh, exponentially um but I don't think we should tell people how it ends because um I think that story ends in um a positive way because we're here still talking about it today. Totally. And we're still we're still listening to new music from stacks today and it is last i checked 2023 that is that is that is some pretty serious legacy business right there i'm gonna do one spoiler alert Mm. estelle from stacks eventually goes on and produces disco duck so there you go (laughs) so you can take that as the spoiler you need i i think the film is is beautifully done a lot of complaints people have with music documentaries is talking heads yeah. in these films or not full performances. But the great thing about the talking heads in it is everyone is super interesting. Yeah. There's a nugget in every little moment yeah. that every person who, whether they were a small part of the company or a large part, yeah. they all have an interesting scope on what was going on and an interesting thing that they're seeing out of the side of their eye or were completely invested in um and i think that this film does an amazing job uh juggling all i mean this is decades of storytelling yeah for me it it, you know this is obviously a a sweet spot for me but you know it could have been 10 hours long and i still would have wanted more um yes but the and i i get i get the talking heads thing in in music documentaries um too often we see the same ones but not in this one and what I feel like is especially um, um, valuable is having these people on record because you know one of one of the unfortunate um, situations of of my business of my job is that I lose people all the time. I lose my primary sources because they made their art. Oftentimes before I was, um, you know, out of diapers and um, and these people just, you know, they 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 leave us. And with them, they um, they leave these stories and, um, you know, that they go with them. And so I, I think that this is a really valuable historical piece. Yeah, I agree. Because of that. Do you have a favorite push come to shove? Do you have a favorite stacks? song that like <laughs> that you just are like all right i know i get the staple singers over here got otis running over here it's like this film i i, I just asked an impossible question i'm gonna retract that yeah. because yeah. i had the same thing i was like i think this booker t song might be the greatest song and then you're like no it's otis running then you're like wait no it's sam and dave mm-hmm. no no it's knock on yeah. wood it's definitely knock on wood i can't do yeah. without knock on wood no just respect yourself no. So I retract that that was a, that was a very innocent thing for me to do. But if you had to pick a song to play today, what would you play? 
Oh boy. Well, I'm in I'm in the mood for a song that nobody knew existed until this box set called Everybody's Talking Love by Betty Crutcher because Bobby Manuel at the end of that song shreds <laughs> on guitar. Incredible. That guy, oh my god. Um no, the whole song the the song is awesome and it's it's just ah, I can't believe nobody ever cut that song. I really enjoyed that the box set is kind of broken up with you know, disc one through three are Stax writers mm-hmm. and Stax releases. Disc four is like moonlighting Stax writers and non-Stax releases. And disc right. five through seven is uncut songs. I thought I found that really helpful when I was listening to all this stuff to have context. Yeah, um, there's great essays in it. Beautiful, beautiful layout. Yeah, great, great photography. Um, I just, I just think this is an essential, essential thing. You don't you don't need a special day to buy it. You should just get it <laughs> Go because get it. it's going to make your life better. So much better. Um, <laughs> so is there a, a box set that in your wildest dreams you would love to see that might be impossible? To- Earlier we were talking about, you know, um, we get to be part of sort of the reissue box set um, world because we kind of have an understanding about we have context for these things and our peers um peer artists have context for those things stuff that our artists that came before us have a tendency and i've just found this in 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 my work and it might not be true all the way across the board but um i find that they didn't those artists the older artists didn't grow up understanding that like something that wasn't perfect that might be a demo or a song of yours um, that you don't deem as perfect as as the artist that shouldn't be released right so there are some sets that um it would be great to have but like artists want to overdub or remix or try to make them better like the 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 songs or, or, or whatever they want to perfect them. Yeah. The Rolling Stones do that all the time and it's frustrating. It is. I've, I've had that argument with people of their age group, with artists of their age group. And I'm like, no, I would like to hear, you know, you, your original intent in 1971. Yes. You know, your original art, you know, I don't want to hear 1971 artists as interpreted in, in, 2023 with what you think sounds correct (laughs) you know yeah you have a you have a great paragraph in the um box set about demos it says demo is often short for demolition but here it means demonstration though some of these are so great they'll destroy you (laughs) i'm like that is well that's robert that's robert gordon and that's what you're going to get in this film too Yes, it's so true, though. Yeah. The thing where you just get to hear the genesis of things, the excitement mm-hmm. and the just the dream of what it could be is it hasn't even been realized yet. Right. Um, but it still has to be great for it to get even greater. Right. And I think that this this box sets shows uh, is such a great showcase for um, uh, just an amazing uh body of work 17 or 18 years too late for the 50th anniversary of stacks but um it it achieved my initial goal which was sh- uh telling a different story about stacks i just couldn't get it done on time <laughs> now it's fantastic at the end of every interview i ask the same question but i tailor it mm. depending on the movie so on a scale from one to ten with one being the lowest and ten being the highest how many Stacks finger snaps do you give this film? <laughs> One stacks finger snap to ten stacks finger snaps. Um in in its um efficacy um and uh expert nature of telling the story of stacks. Um I give it nine finger snaps, but it misses one finger snaps for being too short. Oh, nine is the perfect <laughs> answer. And you you denied it one because you're right. This is something that deserves um, yes. more. And this is a perfect way to tell this story. But maybe somewhere down the line, there'll be another opportunity to even 
dig deeper like you did with this box set so i sure hope so because um this is um stax is is a valuable story um in every possible way uh it's it's creativity it's humanity and um everything that was good and bad and happy and sad about it is is things that i hope we continue to learn from absolutely well, thank you so much cheryl it was so good to see you i really appreciate this super fun thank you for having me i'll see you at the show you know you will <laughs> bye <laughs> all right take care thank you for listening to revolutions per movie we release new episodes every Thursday, so be sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it as well. You can follow us on social media at Revolutions Per Movie and also find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.